In our study of the books of the Bible, we're up to Song of Songs tonight, so that's going to be fun. Our text will be Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, if your Bible uses that title, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 7, last chapter of the book, one verse, chapter 8, verse 7. This is what God's Word says in chapter 8, verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. It's God's Word for His people tonight. Let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to bless our study of it. Lord our God, we thank You again, for the opportunity we have to gather freely and hear from your word tonight. Father, as we come now to this rather difficult book that you've given us, we ask for a blessing upon our study of it. We pray that you would send your Holy Spirit uh, upon the one speaking and upon those listening and enable us all to do these things well, that we might understand what you're saying to us in this book, and even more, that we might see and hear and know our Lord Jesus Christ in it and through it. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if there's uh, one book in the Bible that Christians throughout history haven't really known what to do with, it's this one. Uh, I'm guessing there's not many of us who can remember reading this book with our young children for devotions after dinner. Has the Dazoo family read this book for devotions after dinner recently? Nope, neither has the Coochie family. So, uh, and it's because it's a book really that's, well, it makes us blush if we're going to be honest, right? Um, it's a book that is full of, of evocative and vivid images pertaining to the love that exists between a man and a woman. Uh, the things said in here are the sorts of things that we often try and shield our children from. Uh, on the television, not, of course, expose them to. Yet here this book sits in the middle of the Old Testament. Here it comes to us as the very Word of God, and we don't know what to make of it, do we? (laughs) We don't know what to make of it. Well, Lord willing, and truly Lord willing, will make something of it tonight, I hope. Uh, Let me just begin with a word about the title Sometimes this book is referred to as the Song of Solomon. Uh, that's how I learned it as a kid when I learned the books of the Bible song in school. Isaiah, or how did it go? Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. That's how that song went, if I'm right. But anyway, that's how I learned it. That's how my, my ESV study Bible in my office actually titles the book that way. Um, however, I think, I think the NIV is right, at least the NIV I have, that it's best to refer to this book as the Song of Songs. If I had to choose a title, that's the one I would, I would go with. You can see that phrase right there in verse 1. Um, the NIV says, Solomon's Song of Songs. Um, and that phrase, Song of Songs, is a common Hebrew construction that is really a way of expressing a superlative. Okay, Sometimes Jesus is called the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords, that's simply a way of saying that He's the greatest King or the, or the greatest Lord. Uh, we might think also of the Holy of Holies in the temple 
Uh, that's just a way of saying that it's the holiest place or the most holy place. That's kind of a way in Hebrew of expressing a, a superlative. And so when we see this phrase, song of songs, we need to think of it in the same way we think of king of kings and lord of lords and holy of holies. Uh, it's really just saying to us that of all the songs ever written, this is the very best song. Okay, that's, what the, that's what the title is getting at. This is the very best song there is. And that's saying something, I think, because uh, as we might know, this is, a, this is a love song. And throughout the ages, many love songs have been written. Even today, many love songs are written. But of all the love songs ever written, this, this is the love song of all love songs. No love song compares with this love song. So that's, that's a word about the title. Let me say a quick word about the author. Uh, the NIV says in verse 1 that this is Solomon's song of songs. More literal translation um, is offered in the ESV. It says the song of songs which is Solomon's. Now that word is could mean two things, and the implied is here in in the NIV could mean two things as well. It could mean that this song is by Solomon. It could mean that he is the one who wrote this song. He is the one who penned this song. Uh, It could also mean, though, that this song is for Solomon. That is, it could be that the writer of this song just simply dedicated it to him or wrote it for him maybe on the occasion uh, of, of a wedding. Uh, we honestly don't know. Uh, in chapter 3, Solomon is identified by name, and that makes us think, even though there's some debate about this, but it sure makes us think that he is the man of the song, right? He is the, the man who plays that part in this psalm. It's, it's Solomon. Um, but, uh, but whether or not he wrote it, we, we, we don't know. We don't know what role Solomon actually has in this book. Anyway, what's this, what's this book about? What's this book about? Well, in one word, this book is about love. This book is about love. And I think that's pretty obvious. A more debatable question is whose love? Whose love? Because you see, throughout history, there have really been two ways of reading this book. One way to read it is as an allegory, or one way people have read it, I should say, is as an allegory. An allegory is a story with a deeper meaning. It's a story in which the characters and the plot really symbolize, point to something else. The most famous allegory, I think, is, is Pilgrim's Progress. You've ever read that? That is an allegory. The main character, Christian, represents the Christian. The burden on his back represents the burden of our sin. The road he walks on after coming to the cross represents the hard but narrow way of the Christian life. The people he meets along this road represent both the helps and hindrances that Christians receive or face on their journey and then the celestial city to which he's journeying that represents heaven. Okay, it's an allegory. That is a story with a deeper meaning. What you see when you read the story stands for something else. Some have said that the Song of Songs is to be read in a similar way. It's an allegory 
that ultimately symbolizes spiritual realities specifically pertaining to God's covenant love for His people. Others, though, so that, that's, that's, that's one way people have gone. They've said it's an allegory. Others, though, have said that this, is, this isn't an allegory. It's simply, it's simply love poetry, which celebrates God's good gifts of love and sex within the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. And many of those who adopt this interpretation, they'll read it in light of Genesis 1 and 2, where before sin entered the world... Uh, the man and the woman were together and they felt no shame and they were commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And in all that, we, we see that love and sex within marriage is a good and holy gift. And Song of Songs is simply a celebration of that good and holy gift as it shows us human love at its fullest potential and then challenges God's people to strive after such love in their own marriages. Now, historically, because Christian and Jewish interpreters have been embarrassed by some of the imagery in the book, they've gone the route of allegory in order to downplay some of what's said here. They've simply said that this is a book that ultimately and only speaks about spiritual things. In fact, in the year 100 AD, a Jewish rabbi said that anyone who reads this book in a literal fashion Anybody who reads this book in the sense that it's about the love between a husband and a wife, that person has no share in the life to come. Uh, In 550 AD, an early church council actually forbade any interpretation that was not allegorical, okay? They They just couldn't bear the thought of God's Word speaking so highly and forthrightly about matters of love and sex. And so they said, that's not really what it's all about. It's speaking to, to something greater, to something deeper, to something beyond what it seems. More recently, though, like in the last 150 years, scholars have gone completely the other way. All right? And they've, they've said that to read this allegorically is not correct. That is wrong. This isn't speaking about spiritual realities. It's simply celebrating God's gifts of love and sex and marriage. Right? So we have these two polar, really opposite ends of the spectrum. And even today, I've gone to conferences where they, like, they're tugging back and forth on these things. Right? Which is it? Is it to be understood allegorically? Is it to be understood literally? Is it speaking about God's love for his people? Or is it speaking about the love that exists between a husband and wife? Right? Which is it? It's both. It's both. Why are you so mad, Carl? It's both. Just think about it. Think about it. What is the image that God uses time and time and time again throughout Scripture to describe His love for His people. He uses the image of the marriage relationship. Ezekiel 16, you'll see that imagery there. The first three chapters of Hosea, you'll see the imagery there. The last few chapters of the book of Revelation. And then, of course, the most obvious one, Ephesians 5. This is Ephesians 5, through 24. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he's the Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. And then he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Then if you skip down a few more verses to verse 31 and 32, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So the fact is, Throughout Scripture, it is the marriage relationship. It is the relationship, the covenant relationship that exists between a husband and wife that we see most clearly the sort of relationship that exists between God and His people. Essentially, God says to us throughout Scripture, look at the marriage relationship. Look at things between a husband and a wife, at least how they're, they're supposed to be, right? Look at a good, strong, healthy marriage. Look at that. Okay, you see that? That's the closest earthly analogy to my love for you, right? Over and over again throughout Scripture, that's what he says. He points to the marriage, and he says, he says that's what my love for you, that's, that's the closest earthly thing I can compare it to, right? So on one level, yes. The Song of Songs celebrates human love as a gift from God. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. Love and sex within marriage are gifts from God to His people. And the Song of Songs celebrates that. But on another level, at the same time, this book helps us understand God's own love for us in Christ. Now, one of the reasons I think we have difficulty with this book um, and try reading it sort of either or rather than both and uh, is because we don't read it rightly. We don't read it rightly. I want to read for you an excerpt from uh, Dr. Murray's book, Jesus on Every Page. This book is wonderful, by the way. If you don't have it, I would recommend getting it, and maybe we can... If you want it, talk to me, and we can like get a bunch of them, but this book's just so good. But this is, this is what he says, and this is, I think, tremendously helpful. A few years ago, in my Old Testament exegesis class, I was working my way through the arguments about whether the song was to be interpreted literally or allegorically, when I noticed one of my students smiling and shaking his head, thankfully quite a rare occurrence. Eventually, I stopped and asked this usually courteous young man what was wrong, He explained a little about his Middle Eastern agricultural background, probably close to the song's original location, and how he had studied his ancient culture's literature at a master's level. He went on to politely express his horror at the way we were approaching ancient Eastern literature with a modern Western mindset. He said that such love songs were very common in his culture, and that they were to be primarily interpreted by the emotions and impressions they evoke, rather than by dissecting every word with dictionaries, lexicons, grammars, and so on. These songs, he said, were primarily to provoke and stimulate emotions, rather than to be subjected to cold, logical analysis. He goes on, with the song in particular... We have to dial down the Western academic analysis and also the Western obsession with sex and aim to stir up Eastern emotions and moods. Instead of parsing every word, every tree, every flower, and every body part under a microscope, we should take a step back, sing a few verses, and ask, what impression is this intended to make upon me? 
What emotion does this evoke? What feeling is this calling me to experience or enjoy? And as this is a Christ-centered song, especially ask, what emotion is it calling me to feel toward Jesus? And what is it saying about Jesus' feelings toward me? All right? So it's the emotions that arise within us that are really supposed to teach us and lead us into truth as we read the Song of Songs. And I think he's right, right? When you start dissecting every little jot and tittle of the Hebrew text, what in the world are we talking about here, right? But when you get into the emotional aspect of it, then you get somewhere. Let me, give you, let me just give you some examples, and I'll just let you. I, I wrote down what emotion this generated in me. Actually, I stole a few from Dr. Murray, if I'm going to be honest with you. But uh, I'm going to read a few verses, and, and maybe when I'm done, think of the emotion, the thought that comes to your mind uh, when I read this. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. Anything. Is there a word that comes to your mind at all? Maybe I'll help you on the first one. How about desire? Do we hear hear desire in that? Desire is kind of what pops into my mind. There's a desire that's set forth here. How about verses, this is another couple verses. Think of a word. How beautiful you are, my darling. How beautiful. Your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. Word? Come on. Come on. Joel, come on, buddy. Infatuation. I had delight. But yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a delight, a desire, an infatuation there. Thank you, Chris, for your help. Here's another one, 215. This one maybe will be easy. You have to get, maybe you have to get used to this. I've had, some week, I've had the week to process it. Chapter 2, verse 15. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes. Yeah, Chris, we want to catch the foxes, don't we? The one that ate your two chickens last week. We'll catch that thing. Anyways, I totally got off topic right there. Catch for us the foxes, the little foxes that ruin the vineyards, our vineyards that are in bloom. Anything. Threat, right? Maybe threat comes to mind. There's a threat here to the, to the relationship, right? Maybe it helps. Maybe, maybe me just reading it like this isn't the most helpful, but hopefully I can at least get you, get you on to um, sort of reading it on yourself. Here's, here's another one. This is where we get into some of the scandalous language of Song of Songs, but... I'll tell you the word I had when we're, when we're done with this. How, this is chapter 4, 1 through 7. This is, the, this is probably where we really get thrown when we read this book, too. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats. I guess that was a compliment back then. Descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Remember, this is ancient Near East. I guess there were different compliments. Totally getting off topic. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the halves of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. Again, we're reading it westernized. It makes it sound kind of insulting, but it's a compliment in that day. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. 
When I read that, I hear, I hear someone who's just captivated with his, with his lover. There's just captivation, right? Just everything about you is lovely, is wonderful. Captivation is the word that, that sort of pops out to me there. I'll just give you one more. Uh, chapter 8, verse 7. This is actually, actually the verse we read at the outset. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. If one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. What does that say about love? Lasting, for sure. Love is lasting. The word I had was durable. Same thing, right? There's emotions that are meant to be evoked in us as we read this. And I think you'll find if you read it on your own, maybe having me read it for you um, isn't the best way to do it. But I would encourage you to take it, read it yourself, read a few verses at the time, and kind of, kind of think about the emotions or the thoughts that are evoked in your heart and let them teach you about what is being said here regarding love, whether it's your love for your spouse or whether it's God's love for you in Christ. And I think you'll start getting somewhere in this book when you read it that way. Dr. Murray actually gives advice for reading the Song of Songs. I think it's great advice. He says, when you read this book, there are four questions you should ask. Question one, what's the main point, principle, impression, or feeling? This is really just what we were talking about. What impression, what feeling am I left with after reading this? That's sort of the the point. That's the principle. Question two, what does this teach for marriage? What does this teach for marriage? I think as you read it, you'll see that some passages teach us we ought to to desire our spouse. We ought to delight in our spouse. We ought to be captivated by our spouse. Uh, Maybe you think about the passage with the foxes, right? And, And we realize that there are actually threats to the relationship that exists between a husband and wife. There are things in this world that seek to destroy that relationship. There are threats that we need to be on guard for them. Right? So, so what does it teach for marriage? That's the second question. The third question, what is this teaching Israel about her relationship to the Lord? What is this teaching Israel about her being the Lord's spouse, as it were? And again, you, you think about that, and you'll see some passages um, speaking about the Lord's jealousy. And of course, we're reminded of what God said to Israel over and over again, you shall have no other gods before me. I will tolerate no alternatives in our relationship, right? And so you can kind of think along those lines. What is this teaching about Israel's relationship to the Lord? And then question four brings it finally to us. What does this teach the believer about his or her relationship to the Lord? Or or going back to what Murray said earlier, what does this teach us about about my relationship with Christ or about Christ's love for me? Now, I think you'll find the answers in question three and four maybe overlap sometimes. But but again, if we go to chapter 8, verse 7, read that several times already. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. And then you think about that sort of in a Christ-centered context. It takes me to, to Romans 8, right? What does Paul say at the end of Romans 8? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Really, it's the same truth. It's the same truth being proclaimed in both places. God's love for his people in Christ is unquenchable. Nothing can extinguish it. Nothing can separate us from it. Many waters cannot quench love. So ask those four questions uh, as you read this book, and I think that will help you get somewhere uh, in your reading of it. But kind of, kind of holding on to that emotion or that feeling that is evoked within you as you read it 
That's, that was a great counsel for me um, in my own reading of this book because I am one who wants to just do cold, hard, logical analysis. And you read some of these things, right? And, and you're like, whoa, that's creepy if that starts applying to my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That, I mean, that's just where you're going to get. But when you start getting that feeling, right, that's generated by it, then you can, you can take that somewhere. Let's think about how the book points to Christ. All Scripture does point to Him. That is why we cannot be content to say this is only about human love, because Jesus said in Luke 24, it's all about me. And so if we say this is only about human love, then we've sort of not heard Jesus. So how does it point to Christ? Well, I think it's helpful to remember uh, what we said a couple weeks ago. Um, If God's Word teaches us to expect a creator from Genesis, an emancipator from Exodus, a priest and sacrifice from Leviticus, a guide from Numbers, a covenanter from Deuteronomy, a captain from Joshua, a judge from Judges, a redeemer from Ruth, a king from Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, a rebuilder from Ezra and Nehemiah, an innocent sufferer from Job, a worship leader from the Psalms, Mr. Wisdom from the book of Proverbs, one who makes life living, worth living, excuse me, from Ecclesiastes. Right? If each of those books kind of leads us in that direction, what does Song of Songs call us to expect? What does Song of Songs call us to look forward to? Well, I think it calls us to look forward to the coming of one, a king even, who loves us like no one else. It calls us to look forward to the coming of one whose love for us exceeds even the greatest love we've ever known. That, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians three seventeen, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. The song of songs calls us to look forward to the one who loves us more than, as the song says, tongue or pen could ever tell. That is the Lord Jesus. He is the one who is altogether lovely and delightful and who our hearts desire. He is the one whose love for us cannot be quenched. He is the only one about whom any true believer says, my beloved is mine and I am His. So the Song of Songs, it calls us to look forward to the coming of one, and I think this one specifically is a king. I think the song makes that clear. It calls us to look forward to the coming of a king who loves his people like no one else, and whose love for his people is the most delightful, exhilarating thing imaginable. How then does it apply to our lives? Well, we've already hit some of those, right? This book can be applied to the Christian's relationship with his or her spouse. It can be applied and should be applied to our relationship with God through Christ. But if there's one big principle that we might apply, I think it's, it's simply this. The Song of Songs makes it clear that true love gives. True love gives. In this book, we see two lovers giving themselves wholly to one another. 
you'll notice that neither of them hold anything back. Neither of them keep anything for themselves. Not anything, not any part of the body, nothing. No, they are giving all. This is what love does. Love gives. Of course, we see this throughout Scripture, right? John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave his one and only son. True love gives. We see that in the true love of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life for us. We see that in the true love of God the Father who gave his one and only Son for us. True love gives. That's true in our relationship with God as well. Those of us who truly love God will give of ourselves to serving him who gave himself for us. Those who, aren't, those who aren't willing to give in their relationship with God, those who aren't willing to give of their time, their talent, their treasure, or even their sin, they show, don't they, that they don't truly love God. True love gives. This is true in, in, in the Christian's relationship with his or her spouse. In Ephesians 5, Paul says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I always pound this into the young men who sit in my office getting married. How did Christ love the church? He loved the church in the most selfless way imaginable. He died for the church. Right? If Christ loved the church, that's how you're supposed to love your wife. Be willing to give your life for her. Right? And the wife who loves her husband, she'll give give of herself for him. I mean, that's evident right there. That's true in the marriage relationship. This, of course, is true in our, in our relationships with each other as well. What does Jesus say in John 13, 34? As I have loved you, people of God. He's speaking to the disciples there. He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the church. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is true in our relationship with each other. True love gives True love doesn't always have to get its way. True love doesn't always have to win. True love doesn't always have to be right. True love doesn't always have to be vindicated. No, true love amongst the people of God gives. Of course, we could say this is true in our relationship with the world as well, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And again, we could apply it right on through. True love gives. True love gives. And so in closing, let me just ask you this. Where are you holding back? Where are you holding back in your relationship with God? Where are you holding back in your relationship with your spouse? Where are you holding back in your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Where are you holding back in your relationship with your neighbor? Where are you holding back? Where are you refusing to give? Wherever that is, confess it to God tonight. And ask Him to help you love like Him who has said this to you in His gospel. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. See, the winter is past, the rains are over and gone, flowers appear on the earth. 
The season of singing has come. The cooing of doves is heard in our land. The fig tree forms its early fruit. The blossoming vines spread their fragrance. Arise, come, my darling, my beautiful one, and come with me. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your amazing love. The amazing love that you have made known to us in Christ, your Son. Lord, we are people who long to be loved. We long to be loved. And we see in the Song of Songs that we are loved. You love us more than we could ask or imagine. You love us more than we have any idea. Father, we thank you. We thank you for that love which you've set upon us before the foundation of the world, which you've revealed to us in Christ, which we will enjoy for all eternity. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand for the parting blessing tonight? Brothers and sisters, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face toward you and grant you his peace. Amen. I need to find my bulletin here. We're going to close by singing The Love of God, number 67 in the blue book. And uh, let me check the verses a second. Why don't we do verses, uh, verses 1 and 3? 1 and 3 of number 67. <clears throat>